he was a surrealist. He actually really believed there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. And you could do whatever you want, you know, kill, fly, whatever. That was his major madness. No question, he was insane. I think that congenital insanity was certainly there. Oftentimes when you get that stratospheric intelligence, there are problems, emotional problems. I think he was probably the victim of incest, either his mother or some other family member. And then the rejection by women, you know, in, in, his, in his youth, a student. All of these things came together in a perfect storm to form this incredibly horrific monster. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Today we kick off the second season of our podcast with one of the most shocking and unusual stories ever told, that of Hollywood surgeon slash serial killer George Hodell and his son Steve, who is today's guest. George Hodell's most notorious victim was Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, whose nude, surgically bisected body was found in a vacant lot in Los Angeles on the morning of January 15, 1947. George Hodell's son Steve knew nothing about the fact that investigators in the 40s considered his father the chief suspect. Ironically, Steve spent his career as a Hollywood homicide detective. And a spectacular career it was. Over 24 years as a homicide detective, Steve helped solve over 300 cases and was awarded with more than 75 commendations. But it wasn't until he retired in 1986 that he was confronted with his most important and difficult case, one that would shake him to his emotional core and cause him to uncover the shocking and horrible past of his own father. We're extremely honored to welcome Steve Hodell as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. So I got that proverbial 2 a.m. phone call living in Bellingham, and it was my uh, stepmother, June, my father's wife, his fifth wife, and um, she was hysterical. She said, Steve, the paramedics are here. Your father's uh, collapsed. They've just pronounced him dead come down. Yeah. So I flew down to San Francisco. They were living in a penthouse suite on the 39th floor in downtown San Francisco. Did all the things you have to do to take care of a father's passing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very close to my father. He had been overseas for a long time, but uh, had come back in the last 10 years of his life. He'd come up to see me in Bellingham. I'd go down and he was this very, in the past, he'd been this very mysterious man behind an iron mask kind of thing. And we had become close in the last decade. So uh, I'm sitting there with June, and uh, this is a day or two after his passing. And she comes out and she gives me a small little album, photo album, about three by five inches. Mm -hmm. And she says, I think your father would want you to have this. And I'm going through it, and uh, it's pictures of me and my family and my mom and my brothers relatives and then i come across a photo of a reclining semi-nude 
woman with dark hair, young woman. And I said, uh, June, who is this? Yeah. I don't know. Somebody your father knew from a long time ago. And for some reason, and to this day, I haven't figured this one out, but Black Dahlia comes to mind. It just kind of comes and, and goes. Yeah. I didn't think much of it. Yeah. Uh, a couple of days later, I'm on the phone to my half-sister, Tamar, in Hawaii. We're talking about the great man's passing and what a remarkable life he had. And she says, well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And I said, what the hell are you talking about, Tamar? <laughs> yeah. Where is this coming from? You know, you'd never heard this before. No, Tamar, you know, and I had maybe 45 minutes of conversation in the previous 50 years. Mm -hmm. You know, she kind of spun out in the uh, bohemian and, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And I kind of went a different direction. Mm -hmm. And we just really didn't have contact. She called me a few times when she needed bail on marijuana charges or something but that was it <laughs> yeah yeah anyway of course this was ridiculous i said hell there's not you know i can show he had nothing to do with that in 10 minutes you know with my background yeah and i didn't know really anything much about the black dahlia i knew it was a famous la unsolved yeah uh i had seen the photographs going through the police academy you know they they had an hour thing where they show you the crime scene and the body and stuff and that was it. I didn't even know her name, Elizabeth Short. Never any mention or any hints on during my 23 years on the department. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'll I'll take a look at it. And I started digging into it. And I at that time I had been divorced. My girlfriend was living in LA. So I had her send me up a bunch of uh, articles and stuff from the LA Times and, and LA Public Library and stuff. And I started uh Look, going through it and the next big shock was i discover um that the suspect started sending in notes to the press taunting them you know catch me if you can type things right cut and paste notes that sort of thing and there was one note where was not disguised and a lot of them were disguised handwriting yeah this one i i looked at it was on the front page of the newspaper that said turning myself in on January 29th, had my fun at the police, signed Black Dahlia Avenger. And I look at it, and it's my father's handwriting. Wow. <laughs> you know your father's handwriting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your viewers know theirs. Yeah. I knew mine, and I said, still, this can't be. What is he pretending to be, the suspect? Yeah. So I thought, shit. Well, I said, I'm going to have to relocate back to L.A. and do some serious digging into this and be able to clear him you know there's got to be some answer to this yeah so i went back to la and started my investigation doors kept opening one after the other and uh, before i knew it I, I had gone 180 degrees from where i thought i was going mm -hmm. and i had actually made a case i went in secret to the an active head da presented the evidence to him and he said and not the second shock of course was that it wasn't a, he wasn't just the one killer it was a serial killer yeah and i come up with about six or eight uh related crimes what i call lone woman murders mm -hmm. in la at the time and um they all fit in and and uh the da head da steve k said well you're probably right about the eight murders he says i would file on two of them uh there's enough evidence here to prove and i could win it in court that he killed Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, mm -hmm. and the second, a Jean French murder. 
the red lipstick murder three weeks later. He says, those I could go to court and win. The others, you're probably right, but not enough evidence. Yeah. So with that, I said, okay, I'll, I'll write I'll write the book. And um, and it kind of went from there. And the book came out in 03. That's a pretty shocking discovery to find out that your father uh, was a serial killer, basically. What was that like for you? Uh, uh, you know, emotionally to find out that you're, I mean, like, I mean, that's kind of your, the, a son's worst nightmare, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been through every emotion you can think of since then. Yeah. And, uh, but initially it was two parts of me. It was the son who loved his father mm -hmm. uh, following a path of wanting to know more about him. I knew very little about him. He was very secretive his whole life. And um, left us when we, when I was about 10 or 11, he left the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and he would come in and out and over the years and just briefly, hello, let's have a quick lunch or something. And that was it. And then he'd be gone. So I really knew very little about him. So it's a son who loves his father, but wants to know more about this remarkable, mysterious man. Mm -hmm. And you've also got the other side, who's the trained, objective homicide detective who's been there and done that and is wants us to strictly follow the evidence. So I kind of had to keep these two parts of me separate. Yeah. You know, the loving son versus the objective detective. Roughly two years after the Black Dahlia murder, construction workers in Los Angeles discovered the bludgeoned body of a 40-year-old registered nurse and former actress named Jean French in another vacant lot in Hollywood. Witnesses reported that they had seen her dining the night before with a dark-haired man with a small mustache, which matched the description of George Hodel. They also heard her and the suspect conversing in French and saw the suspect driving away in a 1936 or 37 dark-colored sedan. George Hodel spoke fluent French and drove a black 36 Packard. Written on Jean French's nude torso and red lipstick were the words, Fuck you, BD, the initials of Black Dahlia, who was mentioned prominently in the news at the time. When you first found out, or you were first suspicious that he had was the Black Dahlia uh, killer, can you tell us about him and what you learned about his background? George Hill Hodel was born in Los Angeles in 1907. Uh, he was the only child of um, his parents were from the Ukraine. Both parents were Russian Jews. My grandfather, his father escaped out of, he was about to be encrypted in the Russian army, which was hell for a Jewish man. Mm -hmm. And he managed to escape out and go to Paris. He met uh, his wife, Esther, in Paris. She was a dentist, mm -hmm. a practicing dentist in wow. 1900. Paris, which was extremely unusual for a woman. I would think so. Yeah, I would think that's... Yeah. They fell in love. They came through Ellis Island in 1902 or three in New York for a year, and then they came west to Los Angeles. They had their only son, George, was born in 07. He was a child prodigy, a, mu a musical prodigy. Uh -huh. At the age of nine, he was playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium highly gifted yeah he had the top uh piano teacher in in la and he said he was going to be a great pianist mm -hmm. 
went to high school, public school in South Pasadena. At uh, 14, he graduated, um, highly intellectual, 186 IQ, one point above Einstein. Wow. Incidentally, that that skips a generation, but my boy, <laughs> my boys are in good shape. <laughs> and um, uh, he went to Caltech at 14. Well, he just turned 15. Yeah. And he's at Caltech. He's there for a about a year. And not only is he highly intellectual and, and a musical prodigy, he's also very sexually precocious, mm -hmm. has an affair with a professor's wife. She gets pregnant and um, breaks up her marriage. She goes back east, to, has the child, which she aptly names Folly. <laughs> and, <laughs> Dad, the six, this teenager of what, 16 or 17 now, goes back says I want I love you I want to marry you and raise the child and the woman says George you're a child yourself get out of my life this whole thing was a terrible mistake go away yeah, yeah. so uh he still tried he, he took a for a short time he took a job at a Boston hospital as an mm -hmm. orderly mm -hmm. and tried to convince her and anyway gave up came back and uh, got a job as a taxi driver, fake ID. You had to be 21. Mm -hmm. And he got fake ID and passed himself off as 21, was driving cab. Oddly, bizarrely, like everything else in this story, he's driving cab out of the Biltmore, which is a brand new hotel downtown, luxury hotel. Yeah. One of the guys, one of his partners down there is a guy named William Parker, who was going to law school and would ultimately become LAPD's greatest chief of police. Yeah. So he's driving cab out of there, too. And then he gets a job as a crime reporter for the L.A. Record, which was one of the large magazine, uh, newspapers back then. And he's riding around. This is, of course, during um, Prohibition. Mm -hmm. And he's riding around with the vice guys and they're kicking doors. And he's writing these tabloid stories, you know, uh, the judge's wife with the young blonde is arrested and stuff. Right, right. And then he graduates and starts running around with LAPD homicide. And this is back. This is back in the twenties. Yeah. And again, tabloid stories: the bloody ace of diamonds next to the body, and this sort yeah. of thing. You know. Yeah. <laughs> he does that for a while, and then he starts double dating with another good friend of his named John Houston, who at that time was just the son of the fa of a famous actor, Walter Houston. Yeah. You know, his father was a highly recognized actor in stage and screen. Oh, yeah, he was. He was, uh, yeah, probably one of the best at the t of his time. Yeah. So they start double dating and John is dating a woman by the name of Emilia and dad is dating a woman by the name of Dorothy. Mm -hmm. Well, after a couple of weeks, John and Dorothy fall in love. They switch and they they go off and they get married and they go to Greenwich Village, New York, and Dad and Emily are looking at each other, and I guess Dad said, it's you and me, babe. <laughs> she, she gets pregnant. Yeah. And uh, they go north to Berkeley, where he decides to enter pre-med. Mm -hmm. So he goes four years uh, Berkeley pre-med. Then he goes across to UCSF, San Francisco, to get his MD. Mm -hmm. He also gets a job with the San Francisco Chronicle, writing as a uh, columnist. And he writes these 14 long pieces abroad in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He and Emily co-write co these pieces. So he's working for the Chronicle. He gets his MD. Oh, well, he has another affair with another woman by the name of Dorothy, not the not the original Dorothy. Uh, she gets pregnant. 
people. First, Emilia has a child with him, Duncan, okay, in 28. Mm-hmm. And they're having an affair. He has an affair with another woman, this Dorothy. They have a child in 35, Amar. Yeah. Okay. So the two he's living with the two women and the two children. He gets his MD and he says, you know, I'm I need a little space. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he splits from them, leaves them, and he goes to Arizona and New Mexico and works as the sole surgeon at a logging camp uh-huh. for the CCC. That was uh FDR's uh one of his plans was the uh logging thing. So he did that for a while, then he goes on and gets He's working as the health officer for the state of Arizona. And then he decides to come back to L.A. And he comes back to L.A. At this seven years now have passed and Dorothy and John have broken up after a seven year marriage. Mm-hmm. Dorothy comes back to L.A., hooks back up with George. And my older brother, Mike, is born in 39. I come along in 41. Mm-hmm. And my younger brother, Kelly, Kelvin, comes along in 42. So dad gets a job with the L.A. County Health Department as a social hygiene, quickly rises to the top, mm-hmm. becomes the VD czar of Los Angeles. And um, he decides to buy a house befitting his position. And he buys the Soden House. Many of your listeners and viewers will will know that. It's a, built by Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. Mm-hmm. And it's a Mayan temple in the heart of Hollywood. Yeah. 5121 Franklin. Yeah, yeah. So we move in, you know, in 45, he buys it. We move in, and we're the three little princes running around. Dad's the king. Mom's the queen. (laughs) He has all kinds of cocktail parties, all kinds of interesting artists, good friends with Man Ray, who's a famous surrealist artist. Mm -hmm. And um, then in 1949, there's a knock at the door. LAPD, Dr. Hodel, yes, you're under arrest for incest. Wow. He's arrested, and it's a big trial, high publicity trial. And it turns out that um, Tamar, my half sister, mm-hmm. uh, was staying with us that summer uh, of 49, July. And uh, she ran away. She's picked up by the police, and they're going to bring her back. And they say, Why did you run away? And Tamar says, Because my life is so difficult. Yeah. What do you mean? And she discloses that she had sex with her father and three other adults present. They all had sex together. So it's a big scandal. And um, dad hires Jerry Geisler, who was kind of the Johnny Cochran of his day, mm-hmm. the go-to guy for any you know top criminal um, arrests. So Geisler does his magic, and he and uh, uh, Neeb, his partner, work their magic. And they basically paint Tamar with a pathological liar brush. She's 14 years old, and, mm-hmm. you know, she's got all these fantasies and stuff. And a three-week trial, now they've got three adults present who testify, you know, to the facts. Well, two of the three. Who are witnesses. Who are witnesses and involved in the, they're actually accomplices, you know. Yeah. So they made a deal with them, you, you know, testify and will, you know, either drop the charges or lessen the charges. So they do, but despite all that, the jury comes back in kind of an OJ uh, quick minute and says, you know, not guilty. Yeah. Well, it turns out later I will discover that there was actually uh, looks like about a $15,000 payoff to the DA's office. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you got to understand about this time in L.A., it was very corrupt. I mean, it was a real life L.A. confidential. Right. Right. So dad is not guilty. Um, 
Shortly after that, he takes off in uh, the spring of 50, or the summer, he takes off, leaves the country suddenly, goes to Hawaii, becomes a doctor there. He's counsel. He's also a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And he starts counseling the criminally insane at the prison in, in Hawaii, <laughs> the territory. Jeez. He hooks up with, marries a beautiful, young, very wealthy Filipina. Mm -hmm. They have one child there in Hawaii. And then he goes on to Manila after a couple of years, has three more children with Hortensia, his wife. Mm -hmm. They break up after about four years, four kids in four years. Yeah. They, she gets a dispensation from the Pope. <laughs> he um how do you do that after having four kids beats the hell out of me <laughs> lieutenant you know uh so then he uh has an affair with his office manager he gets into market research mm -hmm. becomes the biggest dog in all of asia and uh, has offices in all tokyo hong kong sydney taiwan all over becomes the leading expert in market research which was a basically a new a new uh, concept back then. Right. And uh, becomes the leading expert in Asia, has an affair with it and marries his, his office manager, June. Mm -hmm. And um, they travel together the world and stuff. And he's coming regularly every year. He comes two or three times a year in his market research to, to the United States. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of these, I get a call at four in the afternoon Hello, Stephen. This is your father speaking. Get a hold of your brothers and let's have a, a quick dinner at, you know, Century City Hotel. Yeah. And we see him for an hour or two and then he's gone. Yeah. So then eventually in 1990, he decides to relocate back to San Francisco, his beloved city. Mm -hmm. And he and June rent a penthouse suite in the uh, downtown area. And I see him for the next 10 years and we develop some somewhat. I mean, he was never a warm fuzzy, but we developed much more of a, a relationship than we'd ever had. When he was older and you were spending time with him, did you ever observe anything odd about his behavior or uh, were there any signs at all that he, you know, that he was harboring this, you know, this other persona, this, you know, I got to tell you, there wasn't. Uh, I mean, if they were, I missed them uh, because I, that would be the farthest thing from my mind. Yeah, of course. He never really displayed anything in my presence that would give me a hint that there might be something there. There was an incident with mom. Yeah. We had just moved. We'd been evicted from our previous rental. We were in a new place and the electricity hadn't even been turned on yet. And I came home and it was dark. It was kind of like uh, twilight, hard to see. And I, I come home, boxes everywhere. And I hear this noise in the mom's bedroom and I work my way through and I go in and here's this man and he's having sex with mom. He's behind her and he's standing up and he's got overalls on. Yeah. Looks like Farmer John, you know. Yeah. And uh, I said, leave mom alone. And I run over and I pick up a lamp and I hit him with a lamp. Yeah. And he backhands me, knocks me across the room and says, get away, boy. He says, your mother's nothing but a whore anyway. Wow. And gets off of her and pulls up his pants and 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 uh, leaves. And I, you know, I look at mom and she's drunk. And, you know, I said, he's right, mom. 
and I run away for like three days. Wow. I said, I want to go live with my father in the Philippines. Yeah. He says, you don't understand. Your father's a monster. He's done terrible things. In the early stages of his investigation, Steve Hodell had no idea how evil his father really was. Back in 2001, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Michael Stone of Columbia University developed a depravity scale from 1 to 22 to help criminal courts rank heinous, atrocious, and cruel behavior. Category 1 includes those who kill in self-defense. At the bottom of the scale, Category 22, is reserved for the most evil, psychopathic murderers with torture as their primary motive. In September 2007, after examining the criminal profile of George Odell, Dr. Stone ranked Steve's father in Category 22, Most Evil, which happens to be the title of a book Steve and I wrote about his father, which was published in 2009. Let's turn to Elizabeth Short and who she was and how she crossed your father's path. Elizabeth Short uh, was a a young, naive young woman who was born in Medford, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. raised there basically by her mother. The father, there was four sisters, she had four sisters. Mm -hmm. So there were five girls and the mother the father kind of split and abandoned them in the 30s. Uh-huh. And his car was found by a bridge, and everybody kind of assumed he committed suicide. And that was kind of the story for a while. She dropped out of high school at 16. She was an attractive young woman. Mm-hmm. She went to Florida, worked as a waitress for a little bit, mm-hmm. met a military guy. Now, this is during the war years, of course. Yeah. And, and uh, she met a... Uh, lieutenant there that she kind of fell in love with he went overseas and uh he was flying back and the plane crashed and he was killed wow so she kind of um distorted things and and you know she had this fixation of marrying lieutenant wright falling in love marrying lieutenant wright and living happily ever after Mm -hmm. so she came out west to los angeles hung out at the uso's stuff was dating soldiers and stuff, sailors. She went to a uh, pharmacy, a soda fountain in Long Beach, where she was living for a while. Mm-hmm. And she'd go in there. And that's actually where her name came from. Some of the guys in there, a film had just come out called The Blue Dahlia, which was a kind of a noir film, 46. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. So the guys in there kind of called her The Black Dahlia, mm-hmm. kind of a spinoff. I don't quite know why. The Blue Dahlia was a bar, not a person. But anyway, that's yeah. what happened. And that's part of the, the myth that would develop. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she hung around and then came to Hollywood and uh, got into uh, kind of dating, dating for, you know, dinner, that sort of thing. She wasn't, yeah. there's a whole lot of myths about her that are simply not true. She was, you know, they, a lot of these films and stuff and books turn her into a prostitute and a hustler and giving sex in the alleys. None of that's true. She was a, a rather naive. She was a uh, she was a twenty two year old by then, uh, looking for love, and um, uh, none of the other stuff was true. And looking to marry a, a, an ex GI, which yeah. L A was filled with at that time. It was all, every street corner. Every street corner had a bunch of sh- soldiers and sailors on it. Yeah, and uh, that was her dream. 
And she was a, a fantasist of, uh, you know, she would make up stories and stuff, tell people that she'd been married to a, a lieutenant and they had a son and they both died. And, you know, so, so she, she made up lies. I mean, the, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, she was never, you know, one of the other myths was she wanted to be a, a, in the films and she, she was an actress in bit parts. None of that's true. She, yeah. you know, I, I think what happened was guys that were dating her said, you're so beautiful. You should think about going into the movies. That's yeah, she was very striking in her photos. Yeah, yeah. she was. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she, she was very attractive and, uh, um, and also very naive. Yeah. Gullible. Yeah. So as far as dad is concerned, she was, ha she was active sexually. Yeah. But it wasn't prostitution or anything. And, uh, she, you know, she would sleep on occasion with these guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, come to find out she had she developed some sort of a, a sexual problem. I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, Bartholin cyst or something. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And she went to a, a, an unknown doctor in downtown L.A. Well, dad had his first street clinic. Yeah. Which, private clinic down there and uh so i always suspected that he was you know one of the suspects is an unknown doctor in downtown la yeah so i always suspected that that, that was george and that's probably how they met mm -hmm. um another thing i discovered was man ray was very close to george and i would later connect some some paintings a painting by man ray to elizabeth short in 43 as early as 43 so she posed as, the, as a model for Man Ray. For right, painting. in this surrealist painting he did mm -hmm. called Le Equivoque. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also plays a very important part in later crime signatures. Yeah. But at that point, he did the he did the, the painting, and either, you know, I think that either Dad introduced her to Man Ray or Man Ray introduced her to Dad. I don't know which. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, they dated. They, they definitely dated. We yeah. wouldn't actually be able to confirm this until we got into the secret files. And in those secret files, they actually, law enforcement uh, named George Hodel and say they were dating and did, did in fact date. Violence and police corruption were so prevalent in late 1940s L.A. that the public demanded that an independent jury be impaneled to look into the city's many unsolved murders including that of Elizabeth Short. By the spring of 1950, DA investigators zeroed in on George O'Dell as the prime suspect. Soon after compiling a case that he felt was rock solid, lead DA investigator Lieutenant Frank Jameson was ordered to shut down his investigation and turn over all evidence, recordings, and interviews to the LAPD. Thirteen of those interviews disappeared from both the LAPD and district attorney's files. But enough evidence remains in the DA's files to clearly point the finger of blame for the Elizabeth Short murder at George Hodel. Steve Kay, the DA that said he'd file it, and I do a presentation to LAPD, the top brass, mm -hmm. shortly. This is before the book ever came out. Yeah. And... Um, uh, Basically, we present all of the evidence, all the linkage and stuff. And uh, then that, of course, starts a lot of uh, newspapers and things jump on it and, you know, go to LAPD and say, hey, what's about this? Well, Steve um, Lopez, who's a, a well-known columnist for the L.A. Times, yeah, he goes to LAPD and says, hey, there's this hotel. And uh, he says his daddy's the Black Dahlia killer, yada, yada. 
you know, what can you tell me? And LAPD says to Lopez, go away. Uh, we don't talk about unsolved cases that we're working on. Well, I hadn't worked on it for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, and they also say that a lot of the reports are missing and stuff have disappeared and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he goes, so to his credit, he goes to Steve Cooley, who's the DA of Los Angeles. He says, hey, Odell, Black Dahlia, yada, yada. And Cooley says, well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayers' money on uh, a 60-year-old case. Yeah. And he says, but, you know, there is a there is a box of, in the vault downstairs on the Black Dahlia. Would you like to see that? <laughs> Lopez wow. says, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Lopez goes downstairs. They open the vault. And Cooley gives him this box. And he goes upstairs, sits down in a room, and opens the files. Out falls a picture of George O'Dell. He's like, whoa, he, he was a suspect. Wow. So he goes through quick and dirty, you know, like most most newspaper men. He's a columnist. He's got he's got a lot of stuff. And, you know, so he goes through real quickly and says he does a couple of articles on it, yeah. you know, saying, yeah. yeah, he was. He says, actually, they bugged the Hodel house, LAPD mm. and the DA's office. And they, you know, he made some incriminating statements and da, da, da. But it was quick and dirty, you know. Yeah. So I go to the I go downtown to the DA and say, hey, can I see the files? Said, yeah. Well, I let him. I guess I got to let you. Yeah. To his credit. And I spent the whole day copying. And there was about 600 pages of Hodel related stuff. Wow. So I bring that back, sit down for three or four months, go through it. And then I present it. What do we what do we discover? We discover that the grand jury, 49 grand jury says, hey, there's all these murders that aren't being solved. It looks like there may be some kind of a cover up. What's happening here? They actually take order it taken away from LAPD and given to the DA to investigate. Mm -hmm. That's a very unusual. I've never heard of it before or after. Mm -hmm. And the DA, a Lieutenant Jamison, is put in charge. He starts investigating, forms a 18-man team. Actually, LAPD says, Well, we got to be on this too. So yeah. they split it. Half, half LAPD, half DAs. 18 men, 24-7 around the clock. They go out. Pick up George Hodel at our Mayan temple and take him downtown. And while he's downtown being talked to, they break into the house. Mm. Incidentally, I would later discover in the files that we were away. Mom and we three boys were living with her brother for three weeks. So dad was there alone during the commission of the murder. And uh, they break in and they put live microphones in the living room and the bedroom. Not not phone taps, actual live yeah. microphones. And uh, they run a hard line to the basement and then out, and they hook it up to the telephone lines and run it to Hollywood Station, of all places, which is about three miles away. Yeah. Sit in the basement, 18 detectives, 24-7, two uh, six-hour uh, shifts for six weeks. Wow. And they're listening and monitoring these live conversations. Yeah. And the third day into the stakeout on uh, February 18th, there's a conversation with dad and a, another guy, a Baron Haringa, I would later identify him as, who's a, a friend and accomplice he'd known from the 20s forward. And um, they're, they're basically talking about, uh, first dad talks about um, killing his secretary. Well, he'd been investigated by LAPD two years earlier for, for killing his secretary. Yeah, and uh, they couldn't prove it. They could 
over forced overdose of second all. Yeah. And in that he, he talks to him and he says, yeah, he says, uh, you know, um, covered her mouth, you know, uh, you know, took her to the hospital. Maybe I did kill my secretary, but they can't prove it now. She's dead. Yeah. And, uh, so he admits the one murder right there. That, that's the one murder right there. And also yeah. mom had, uh, revealed the fact that she she told this to tamar when tamar this was actually the reason tamar ran away was mom told her you've got to get out of here dad's you know your father uh your father is crazy uh he you know and then she says about she tells her the incident about ruth spalding the secretary she says i got a call from dad he was at her apartment i went down he gave me some manuscripts that she was just going to disclose uh and he told me to burn them mom says i did burn them i took them home and i burned them and um the, the, apparently they were going to reveal what the secretary knew about him mm -hmm. and either that was the fact that he was with elizabeth short although this was earlier so well he'd been dating her so it could have been elizabeth short but later some of the other crimes i discover is more likely what she was going to reveal at any rate he overdoses her takes her and uh when she's comatose she literally dies 20 minutes later after being taken to the hospital. He mm. knew she, you know, they couldn't recover. And your mother knew this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was actually an accomplice. So he had her by the short hairs in regards to, you know, if you say anything or tell anything, you know, you're an accomplice you're to murder and you're going to go yeah. to prison just like me. Yeah. And there are a whole bunch of other things that in, I would later discover that she was she was actually involved in some of the stuff unwittingly but you know not not an active participant but there for example elizabeth short um i would discover when i interviewed i interviewed one of the interview most amazing interviews i ever did was with a merle mcbride who was a retired policewoman mm -hmm. and she lived in san diego and i went down and talked to merle and uh, here's the son of the killer talking to the person that was the last that last saw elizabeth short alive yeah, and she related the story to me that um, just the days before the body was found, uh, that Elizabeth Short came running out of a downtown bar up to her and said, "There's a man that's threatened to kill me. He's in the bar," and police and McBride goes with her. They go back to the bar. The man's gone, but her purse is there. She gets it. Yeah, and then a couple of hours later, McBride's still on her uh, uh, on her uh, street shift. I'm forgetting yeah. the, the words for the it. Beat. Yeah, a beat, beat. Yeah. downtown yeah, beat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, how soon we forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't do that anymore. And yeah. she sees her walking out. This is like three or four hours later. She sees yeah. her walking out with two men and a woman from another bar. And she goes up to her and says, are you all right? And Elizabeth says, yeah, I'm going to meet my father at the bus station in, in a little bit. She says, okay. Well, that's literally the evening of her murder. The morning of January 5th, 1947, was particularly cool and overcast for Los Angeles. At around 10.30 a.m., a woman named Betty Bersinger was walking with her three-year-old daughter in the Limer Park section of the city, just five miles south of Hollywood, when she caught a glimpse of what she thought was a store mannequin lying in the brown grass of a vacant lot. Stopping to take a closer look, she recognized that a nude woman's body had been dumped a few inches from the sidewalk. Betty Bersinger grabbed her daughter and ran to a nearby house, 
and phoned the nearest police station, which sent out a bulletin reporting a possible drunk in a lot at 39th and Norton. What stunned police officers discovered instead was a severed naked female corpse lying spread-eagled in the grass. Within days, the body was identified as belonging to a 22-year-old woman named Elizabeth Short. One of the main things that made this uh, uh, one of L.A.'s most infamous homicides, if not the most infamous, was the fact, uh, the horror of what was done to her. She was surgically cut in half with a medical procedure known as hemicorporectomy, where you can only divide the body without sawing through bone by going through the second and third lumbar vertebrae. And the body was carefully posed. Um, Many wounds were inflicted on the body, pieces of flesh, the left thigh, a large, about a pound of flesh was cut out of the left thigh and inserted in her vagina. They found other items from the body inserted in her anal cavity. A large ear-to-ear cutting was uh, done uh, on her face. This is a lot of people misinterpret this because when you see the pictures of it, it looks like a jagged, you know, uh, cut, but actually it's a very well-rounded scalpel cut. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they put sutures in the mouth at the coroner's office to close it, which gave it this effect. But actually it was very well-rounded. It was almost like a joker smile then. Right. Yeah, it was, well, it was actually, it was more after a, a surrealist painting, but mm-hmm. um, so, so uh, the body was uh, crisscross cuttings on the right thigh, very distinctive, unusual crisscross pattern on the right thigh. The Actually, the right breast was completely excised and removed. Mm-hmm. And all of these things would later become identified with surrealist paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Man Ray, his close friend, had done, uh, uh, the arms were posed above the head uh, in in a surrender position. And the lower part was posed, juxtaposed just off uh, inches to the right of the upper half. So it was carefully posed. It wasn't just dumped there. It was carefully posed. And Man Ray did a couple of paintings. And one was called The Lovers, which was a pair of lips. And they go across the horizon and this was, I believe, was an imitation of a slashing of the mouth. Mm-hmm. He also did a, another painting called the Minotaur, mm-hmm. which was uh, actually was their mascot. The surrealist mascot was the Minotaur, mm-hmm. who was the monster, the half man, half beast from Crete, yep. who devoured young maidens. Yep. And um, uh, he was their mascot uh, up to the surrealists. Um, and the body, he did this basically painting um, a photograph where a woman is cut in half, hands above her head in the surrender position. And um, I believe that uh, that was, Dad posed that after his Minotaur photograph. Later on, uh, other surrealists would uh, identify um, various things, giving knowledge that they knew, um, William Copley was a close friend of Man Ray's, mm-hmm. and he lived in Hollywood and was with Man Ray most of those years and went with Man Ray to, back to Paris. He did a uh, painting called It's Midnight, Dr. Blank. Yeah. And it shows a woman, a nude woman in a bathroom, which is identical to the bathroom at the Franklin House. And uh, basically, he has surgical instruments next to 
it, and they actually spell out Hodel, H-O-D-E-L. Wow. You know, if not knowing any of this information, it would mean nothing other than appears to yeah. be surgical instruments. Yeah. When you actually see it, it's actually Hodel. Wow. So, and, you know, on and on it goes. The Etant Donné uh, is another famous surrealist painting by Duchamp. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, we have probably done to uh, mimic George Hodel's. It's a nude woman on a vacant lot, dead. Apparently, it, it uh, again, it was uh, an homage to George. Yeah. And there's other paintings that go on with, you know, I've probably got about eight, seven or eight now that are linked to him. So this was a major crime signature and what I call murder is a fine art. Yeah. And this was part of his pathology was, uh, you know, doing this and and playing these games and and, uh, taunting the police with these hidden secrets and stuff. In 2006, art historians Mark Nelson and Sarah Hudson Bayliss wrote a book called Exquisite Corpse, published by Bullfinch Press, in which they traced, through visual comparisons and historical research, the profound connections between surrealistic art and the Black Dahlia murder. In their very compelling book, the authors suggest that the work of prominent surrealists, including Man Ray, Max Ernst, Salvador Dali and others may have inspired George Hodel and proposed that some of the artists appear to have referenced the Black Dahlia murder in their later works. So back to the stakeout. So he talks about, you know, supposing that he says on these, these are recordings and I'm reading these transcripts and I can't believe it. Yeah. And uh, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they can't prove it now. My secretary's dead. Yeah. So, you know, Ruth could have hooked or mentioned that they were lovers and stuff. Yeah. And it goes on and on with other stuff. This He says, this is the best payoff between law enforcement I've ever seen. Uh, don't cop out ever. You know, yeah. we're just a couple of smart fellows. Yeah. And on and on. But the real kicker and the whole, the reason for the cover up, which I lay out, is basically I'm reading the reports and I can't believe it. It says, this is the transcript. It says, Hodel and, uh, Baron go downstairs to the basement. Blows are heard. A woman screams. More blows are heard. A woman screams again. Then it's silent. And I'm saying to myself, why aren't the two detectives that are listening to this out the door over there and doing a rescue? You know, they're five minutes away. They're, They're listening to a woman getting murdered. They do nothing. It's either a serious felony assault, but more likely, I think it was a murder. Yeah. Because also, he says, don't leave a trace of anything. Yeah. So they have a murder on tape. Yeah. And you've got to understand the history of L.A. and the timing. Chief Parker is literally weeks away from becoming the next chief. Mm -hmm. He wants to clean up Dodge Mm -hmm. and get rid of the corruption. And basically, he knows if this comes out, he won't be able to take power and yeah. stop and do the things he wants to do. Yeah. So I think there was some midnight oil being burned at City Hall with the DA and stuff. And they said, look, let's lock this away for now, you know, take power, do what we need to do, and then come back to it at some future time. Yeah. And I think that's what they did. Yeah. Basically. And, and uh, you know, kind of for the good of the city, for the right. good of themselves and the department. Yeah. And then, of course, later we we get 
to confirm this, all of the top brass confirmed the case was solved, and they and they named George Odell. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you want me to read the actual quotes uh, from these guys, sure, 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 yeah. Uh, Parker, we identified the Black Dahlia suspect. He was a doctor, uh, and of course, we know from the files that doctor was George. Thad Brown, chief of detectives. The Black Dahlia case was solved. He was a doctor who lived on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. Hmm. Now, maybe it was another doctor on Franklin, but I don't think so. I don't either. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Jemison, we know who the Black Dahlia killer was. He was a doctor, but we didn't have enough to put him away. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But he was ordered to 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 send the case back to LAPD. Yeah. And then the undersheriff, the Black Dahlia case was solved. It'll never come out. The suspect was a doctor they all knew in Hollywood involved in abortions. And in the tapes, Dad talks about committing abortions and stuff, which was a felony back then. And that would send you to prison for five years. Yeah. So, you know, all of this. And then, of course, since then, I've come up with so much. This is why there are eight books. You know, I've actually been able to link physical evidence from the Franklin House to the crime scene, mm-hmm. uh, which was remarkable. And uh, wow, we had a cadaver dog alert to you know, I think they're either bodies buried in on near the property or in the basement. One of the big physical evidence connections linkage is again, you know, doors keep opening. So I'm get the site I'm gonna do a little research on Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., Lloyd Wright. So I go to uh the LA uh to uh, UCLA collections, special collections. Mm-hmm. And I get and then there's a file uh, on Lloyd Wright. So I'm going through it. And within that file, here's a file on George Odell, right? No kidding. And I open that up and here's actual, well, of course, dad had Lloyd Wright do the reconstruction because he wanted it to be pristine and as it as it was. Right. So he hired him to do the work. And I'm looking there and here are receipts for um um bags 50 pound bags of cement and uh and landscape landscaping bags uh that and i look at the date on them and this was a bill to george from from right yeah. i'm looking on the date and it's it's uh january 10th 1947 yeah so three days you know uh, basically days before the b- murder yeah and the body, uh, LAPD and the discovered that the body was actually transported on 50 pound bags of cement, empty cement bags, and a bag of manure, 50 pound bag of steer manure. Yeah. And the body was transported, the two halves, she was surgically bisected, two halves were transported in a car, and the bags were left by the body with blood on them and stuff. Yeah. And one of them was steer manure. Well, she had been force fed feces oh. found in during the autopsy they found feces in her stomach yeah with green material that they couldn't identify well this bag was fertilite with which contained green green particles yeah but clearly part of his torture and, and she'd been tortured for four hours yeah pieces cut from her body it was horrific anyway she was force-fed feces which was the steer manure yeah so now we've got him linked you know yeah yeah so it's just uh, amazing how much has unfolded since. Let's talk about the motive for a minute, because you found that there was like a very specific reason that your father 
was mad at Elizabeth Short. So dad had gone over to China in uh, 45, and he was going to be there till 40, uh, 40, uh, let's see, he went over in 40, no, I'm sorry, he went over in 46, and he was going to be there till mid 40, so uh, seven or eight. So he goes over and he's, he's actually appointed a lieutenant general uh, in China, and uh, he's working uh, there, and as a doctor, right? That was he, yeah. Was as a medical doctor, a doc- he's working yeah. for UNRWA, uh, UNRWA, United Nations Re- uh, Rehabilitation. Yeah, a- and he's over there, you know, right after the war, mm-hmm. and uh, he's given a jeep, and he's given a, a cook and, and a, an assistant and stuff, and three star flag in the jeep, and, and uh, he's riding around doing all this stuff. So he's over there. Well, come to find out in the secret DA files, Elizabeth Short is back in Chicago, and she's interviewing various newspaper men. She's actually sleeping with them, and she's investigating uh, some crimes back there, mm-hmm. the lipstick murders. Yeah, And these were three different murders. One was a little girl named Suzanne Degnan, a uh, six-year-old, and um, they were they were all linked together, and they... Um, she was investigating him for some reason. We don't quite, you know, I think, I think it was because she found out something that pointed to George as the probable suspect. Yeah. He's in China. She's back there trying to get information, sleeping with three or four different newspaper guys asking about the Degnan murder and lipstick murders and stuff. And I think what happened was somehow dad found out. Yeah. She was through some way, some informant, some friend, Right, but uh, she was invested, and he quits his job there at UNRWA, comes back, suddenly comes back. She starts running and hiding and saying she's being a man's going to kill her, and within uh, several months she's dead. Yeah. So I think this was his his reason to come back because to silence her. Right. And uh, and this is actually documented in the actual DA reports. Elizabeth Short must have known something troubling about Steve's father that maybe he let slip during an intimate moment or while under the influence. And this information was so disturbing that it caused her, a naive young woman with very little money, to travel to Chicago in the summer of 1946 to try to obtain information about a series of horrific murders that had taken place there. According to documents in the LADA's file, Elizabeth Short's trip to Chicago most probably sealed her fate and caused George Hodel to return to Los Angeles from China, hunt her down, and end her life, making her one of the most infamous murder victims in history. So she goes back to Chicago while he's gone in China to investigate these other murders. Right. You've linked those murders also to your father in terms of uh, there's a lot of evidence linking those murders to your father. There is. So somehow she found out about your father being involved in these murders. We don't know how. Or suspected. Yeah. Or suspected. And she goes to, she, she has no money, really. She's living hand to mouth. Right. But somehow she go, raises, she's curious enough that she goes back to Chicago to try to find out what she can about what the police know about the the suspect in those murders. Right. Then George comes back, and a couple weeks later, she's dead. One of Dad's crime signature MOs was street signs. Yeah. And 
he he was playing these games where he was you know a lot of his victims were posed which is very unusual posing is about one percent of all murders mm -hmm. so that in itself was unusual so the street signs i start to discover is uh so the little degnan girl she's surgically bisected in fact the, the autopsy surgeon back there said i could i'm not as good a surgeon as whoever did this yeah she went between the second and third lumbar vertebrae which is called a hemicorporectomy it's a, it's a procedure mm -hmm. Uh, to divide the body. Anyway, her body parts were hidden in sewers right near the murder location. And body her body parts were poised off a street named Hollywood. Yeah. Because they, okay, coincidence, George is a Hollywood doctor, no big right. deal, you know. Right, right. So then in the Elizabeth Short, you know, a year later, almost to the day, Elizabeth Short's murder is posed off a street named Degnan. Hmm. What's a little girl's name? Degnan, right? Yeah. Say, okay, well, still, you know, no, that's that's pretty hard uh, coincidence. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, it's like uh, I'd never even heard the name Degnan before. No. Anyway, and then when he goes to Manila, he also does a surgical murder of uh, victim Lalu, and uh, her body is posed off a street. Well, first, first he does the French murder, Jean French. Three weeks later, yeah, and he poses her body off a street named Mountain View. Okay, on a lot. Yeah beaten to death, strangled on a lot in West LA. And just 10 days before that, Elizabeth Short was buried at Mountain View Cemetery. Wow. Okay, so Mountain View Street, yeah. another clue. Yeah. Then we go to Manila, and um, he poses the murder victim there on a vacant lot, surgically bisected, the same deal. It's a Black Dahlia copycat murder, or not copycat, but... Uh, and poses her body off a street named Zodiac. Yeah. And I said, and I said to myself, no way, there, this can't be that, you know, yeah. I, I didn't know anything about Zodiac. Yeah. But I said, this is ridiculous. But I said, well, at least I got to check it out. Yeah. So that would lead me into most evil, as you know, lead us into the initial most evil. Right. Where we came back and said, well, there's not enough here to say he did it, but he needs to be looked at as a suspect. Yeah. And put on the top of the list for all of these reasons. The Zodiac killings. Yep. Mm -hmm. And basically, then Most Evil 2, we would actually come up with additional information that would definitely show he was Zodiac. Along with the, you know, the profile. Well, I, th I guess in our book, we came up with the comparisons, didn't we? We found yeah. the, the yeah. two additional drawings that were picture perfect to George O'Dell. That's right. Anyway, that's a whole nother interview story we, we could do that another time yeah that's a, that's another but, but the incredible linkage, story the, the street yeah. sign showed this you know showed one of his crime signatures uh playing games and tying the police yeah the other had to do strictly with surrealism yeah and and in dad's heart of hearts in his dark heart he was a surrealist and he wanted yeah. to be a an artist yeah and he was very close friends with man ray for 10 years well man ray was in hollywood and Actually, Man Ray and many of the other surrealists, famous surrealists, knew that George had committed this crime. I'm not saying they were involved. Mm -hmm. I'm saying after the fact. Yeah. And, and each of them, yeah. in their own ways, uh, did a painting to acknowledge it mm -hmm. and, 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 and show the clues that they knew that George Hodel was the killer. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, this was all part of his dad really, you know, the difference between the surrealists and George was they had their red wine they drank their wine and 
you know, talk the talk, but he walked the walk. Yeah. He actually really believed there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. Mm -hmm. And you could do whatever you want, you know, kill, fly, whatever. Yeah. And, and um, that was his major madness, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And no question. He was insane. I think that congenital insanity was certainly there. Oftentimes when you get that stratospheric intelligence, there are problems, emotional problems. I think he was probably the victim of incest, either his mother or some other family member. Mm -hmm. But and then the rejection by women, you know, in, in his in his youth, a student. Yeah. All of these things came together in a perfect storm yeah. to form this incredibly horrific uh, monster. Homicide detective Steve Hodell grew up never suspecting that the father he loved and longed to connect with was a vicious serial killer. It's a story that grows deeper and more psychologically fascinating the further one looks. Here's one example. The reason Steve joined the LAPD in the first place was at the suggestion of his first wife, who he later learned was more than a decade older than she told him she was and had previously been an intimate acquaintance of his father. To date, Steve has written eight books about his father's many crimes. In 2009, he and I collaborated on one of them, the bestseller Most Evil, which traces the connections between many of George Hodel's murders across the United States and overseas. It takes tremendous courage to do what Steve has done, uncover the ugly truth of one's father and family, He's done so with great investigative skills and determination. For these qualities and others, he's today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer Ralph Pizzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, like, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.